so welcome back to the untypical podcast so this episode is going to be a little different from the previous ones that i've done because uh this one isn't like you know the the quote that i usually say uh the podcast where we talk about weird things or weird things that people are into uh this is not a weird thing and it's not something weird that someone's into it's actually uh something that uh it's it's an experience that someone has gone through that uh, most of us will uh hopefully never have to experience or never get to experience uh today we're going to be talking to a 911 survivor so uh his name is Mr Joe Torrio he's a retired uh New York Fire Department uh member and uh, he was present on that day and uh his story is slightly different because he wasn't supposed to be there that day but uh a slight change in plans that you will find out when you listen to the podcast caused him to in fact suit up in his fire fighting gear and uh, go to the scene where the twin towers had been hit by uh, the planes so he told me a bunch of things that were quite honestly uh, very hard to process and i cannot imagine what the people uh, who were actually present over there had to go through during those moments of crisis and more than that i still cannot imagine what the families of those people who lost their lives during that attack are still going through to this day so i just like to say that uh, a salute all the people who were who were members of the new york police department the new york fire department and every other authority that tried their best to help the people who were trapped inside those two buildings and uh, my heart also goes out to the uh, people who unfortunately lost their lives that day as well as their family members who uh, still probably think about that that day so without any further ado let's get right into this conversation and uh, i'd encourage all of you to listen to the whole thing because uh, every single second of this conversation carried a lot of emotion and uh, honestly it'll teach you a lot about what people go through during those moments where you don't know whether you're going to go back home to your family or you're going to lose your life that day so i'd encourage all of you to listen to just the whole thing listen to everything he has to say and just try to understand or try to gauge though we will never truly understand but just try to gauge and feel the emotions that those people felt on that day Hello. Right. So, uh if you could just start right now, I'd like to go to the first question that uh I had sent over to you. Yes. So, uh let's just start from the beginning uh of the day on September 11, 2001. Uh what was your morning like on that day? Well, you know, my story surrounding that day is a very ironic story. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most beautiful days I'll ever remember uh here in the United States. Uh it was the ending of summer and we're getting ready to go into the fall season and I was on my way to a press conference that morning I had been working with a company called Fisher Price Toys uh-huh. also part of the Mattel corporation I had helped them develop a new action figure for kids which was a likeness of a New York City firefighter his name was going to be Billy Blazes he was in addition to their other rescue heroes that they had and on my way to the press conference to introduce this new rescue hero a New York City firefighter to the world uh somebody said a plane just hit the World Trade Center as I was leaving my office and headquarters to go to But that press so so what was your first reaction when you heard that news well the fir- my first reaction was that it was probably a little two seat piper cub somebody might have just gotten their private pilot's license and they were excited about their first solo flight they decided to fly down over the beautiful Hudson River and circle the twin towers and then fly back up the Hudson to land for their first solo flight for their private pilot license and i figured they got a little too close to the building and a wing hit a window and broke a window but you know the only story that's being heard is that a plane hit the world trade center and everybody thinks it's a big deal but I'm not really thinking it's a big deal at all I'm just worried about getting stuck in traffic and not getting to my press conference 
Oh, so so your first impression was not a terror attack. Your mind didn't go there at first. Well, nobody, because you know, uh, except for the people, even the people that were outside of the towers in the immediate area, which happened to be a lot of my friends from the fire department, they actually saw the jet strike the North Tower, which was the first tower struck. And they couldn't even figure out why. They thought maybe the plane was having some kind of mechanical damage, you know, but uh, then again, it didn't seem like uh, it, it was a terrorist attack initially. I don't think anybody was thinking that. Uh, and we should have because... They tried to blow up the buildings eight years before on February 26, 1993. And we were always told back then that they might come back and try and do this again. But of course, nobody's thinking that they were going to use a jet. We thought they would come back and, and, and use more bombs like they did the first time. Oh, so nobody expected an attack of such magnitude to happen. Well, you know what? No, that's not true. Okay. The FBI had been hearing what we call chatter. They had heard all these uh, rumors that terrorists were contemplating hijacking commercial airliners and using them as weapons of mass destruction. What the FBI did with that information, we're not really sure, because on a daily basis, they hear these rumors all the time. And how do you follow up with it? Oh, so they had heard some news, but, uh, you know, because it gets lost in the loads of information that comes in, they didn't pay much attention to it. Right. I mean, there wasn't any specific information. In other words, the information wasn't detailed at all. It was basically rumor that they would contemplate using commercial airliners and using them as weapons of mass destruction. Well, I mean, yeah, the truth of the matter is they heard that. What they did with that information, I don't know. What could have they, what could they have done with it? I don't know. I mean, what do you do? Uh, you strip search everybody that's getting on planes from, from that point forward. I don't know. Right, because there's no really viable option to just check everybody, right? To check every single flight coming into the United States. Well, you know what? Not unless you're El Al Airlines from Israel, okay? They will profile and check anybody they want, and they don't really care what anybody has to say about it, okay? They profile people who are potential targets here in the United States. Of course, you know, people feel that we shouldn't be profiling people. And I don't think you should profile people casually. But if there are people who seem to be a threat, I think you should pay a little closer attention to them. To me, it's only common sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, were you an active firefighter uh, at the time of the attack? I was active, but I was recuperating from another injury, and that's why I had a desk job working in fire department headquarters. So, uh, so how, how exactly did you land up at the site of the Twin Towers? Well, okay, I was getting ready for this huge press conference. It was going to be a really big, uh, exciting day in New York City. Like I told you, we were going to introduce a new children's action figure made in my likeness. It was going to be a New York City firefighter, and we were going to introduce him to the world with Fisher-Price Corporation. As I was getting ready to leave for the press conference in my office and headquarters, somebody said a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And of course, I'm not thinking it was a big deal. I was only afraid that I wouldn't get to the press conference because there'd be too many emergency vehicles rushing to the scene, and I'd get stuck in traffic and not make the press conference. And all the TV stations, all the newspaper reporters were waiting for me. But I did jump into my car, and I was in Manhattan from Brooklyn, where headquarters is situated. I was in Manhattan like three minutes later, and I was only about an eighth of a mile away from the Twin Towers as I was going over the Brooklyn Bridge going into Manhattan. And I could look to the left about an eighth of a mile away, and I could see about 10 floors of fire all around the top of the North Tower. Then I realized, hey, this is no little plane. This had to have been a commercial jet. And I had to make an impromptu decision. What do I do? Do I make a right and go up to the press conference? Or do I make a left turn and get down to the World Trade Center where my old firehouse was across the street and take off my dress uniform and borrow a set of firefighting clothing and then respond you know, to the attack? And that's what I did.
Oh, so you made an impromptu decision to uh, not go to the press conference, but instead go to the aid of the people at the Twin Towers. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I saw the amount of fire around the top of the building, I knew that this was a major incident, that this couldn't have been a little plane, that it had to have been a commercial jet. Because I spent the first 15 years of my career in that firehouse across the street from the World Trade Center. I spent 15 years there. I left there in 1996 when I got promoted to lieutenant. But for the first 15 years of my career, I used to watch every single day hundreds of flights going into LaGuardia Airport fly over the Twin Towers. And I always said that one day, one of these jets are going to get lost or disoriented and one of the uh, jet is going to accidentally hit one of these towers. Matter of fact, a couple of months before 9-11, a commercial jet, I don't know if he was lost in fog, but he missed hitting the towers by 200 feet. So I always thought that something like this could happen. I wasn't thinking terrorism right away. So, so okay, so right now you have uh, you've left the press conference. You haven't attended it. And no, you have I gone to go. Yeah, I never made it to the press yeah, conference. Right. So and now you've gone to go uh, borrow a set of firefighter clothes and head to the site. That's correct. So uh, just, just uh, if you could just run me through what was the thoughts, what were the thoughts that were going through your mind as you were putting on the suit, ready to head on to uh, the site? Well, what happened was I actually was at the site at nine o'clock in the morning, which was at which was my firehouse. Uh, my my, uh-huh. my old fire, my original firehouse is where I responded to first because I needed to borrow a set of firefighting clothing. I was in a dress uniform that day for the press conference. So I got to my old firehouse, which was right across the street from the South Tower. And when I got there, both of the fire engines had already responded to the North Tower, which was the first building struck. But the doors of the firehouse were left wide open after they responded. And groups of people from the area that got hit with jet fuel and pieces of the building were running and saw a firehouse with the doors open. And they all ran inside that firehouse and kind of trampled each other. So when I got to the firehouse, I really couldn't even get inside because even though the doors are open, people were laying all over the floor of the firehouse. Some people were screaming, some were crying, some were bleeding, some were in shock. And I had to kind of jump over them to get to the uh, storage rack to borrow a set of firefighting clothing from another fireman who was off duty. And I ran out of the firehouse. And as I was running to the North Tower, I had to pass the South Tower. It was now 9.03 a.m. And I heard a roar. And I looked up and the second jet came right over my head and slammed into the South Tower. And at that point, I realized three things. A, we were under terrorist attack. I knew that if two planes struck two buildings, it had to be a planned attack. And then I knew that everybody on the top of both towers was doomed to death. I knew they wouldn't get down and we could not get to them. And the next thing I said to everybody I encountered at the scene, I said, these buildings are going to collapse, but nobody believed me. As soon as you saw the second tower, uh, the second uh, plane hit the tower, uh, you instantly knew that the people up there were doomed. They were not going to make it out alive. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's part of, a, you know, I can go into detail, but we probably don't have time for that. What happened was when I went to school, I studied structural engineering in college before I was a fireman. And two of my professors in college, they were also working for the concrete contractor on the Twin Towers. They were in charge of placing all concrete on the 110 floors of those buildings. So they were able to take me and the other students on a school trip down to the World Trade Center Twin Towers to study them when they were being erected. And as a new engineering student, I was amazed that these buildings seemed to be missing the requisite amount of steel that should be supporting them. But it was a new novel design. And needless to say, the architect and the engineering team obviously did a very good job because the building stood for 30 years, but they were not built like older conventional construction, like the Empire State Building. They had a radically different steel support system, very, very lightweight. And I knew at that point that those buildings would not be able to withstand that amount of structural damage and fire and that the buildings, in fact, would collapse and that the interior stairways, of which there were three stairways in each tower, that they would be severed in half. And there was no way with that amount of fire the people from above could get down, and there's no way that rescuers could get to them. 
so uh, i'm i'm sure like as, as a member of the fire department uh, you were given a couple of uh, instructions or orders as to what to do precisely when such an event occurs uh, so so were they did you were you able to follow those orders or did you have to improvise like on the spot and try to just think for yourself and say no to save these people i need to not take orders but just do do what i think you know that's a really good question uh because i was really acting independently at that scene i wasn't really supposed to be there i was recuperating from another injury so i really didn't have to respond to that incident i was not really an active i was an active firefighter but not in a firefighting role i was the director of education working in headquarters i had a desk job while i was recuperating but you know uh i still uh sprung into action uh like any firefighter would even if even though i was recuperating from an injury if i was laying in a hospital bed with an intravenous line i would have ripped it out and i would have ran down to the world trade center simply because i'm a firefighter but no i acted independently that day uh and having been involved in the incident 8 years before when they bombed the towers i remembered a lot of lessons that were learned from that incident and that we should try to capitalize on those lessons if in fact there would ever be another attack which there was that day and so one of the things i always remembered from the bombing was that somebody had to maintain the periphery of the complex free of vehicles being parked haphazardly because when the bomb went off in 1993 We had over a thousand emergency vehicles all around the circumference of the World Trade Center complex, and we couldn't get ambulances to hospitals because we couldn't find the drivers to all these emergency vehicles, like police cars, fire engines, and ambulances. So, one of the first things that I wanted to do from those lessons that were learned from the bombing eight years before was to make sure that emergency vehicles were properly parked and weren't blocking the ambulances. so we can get them to and from hospitals so uh, were your other colleagues uh, with you or were you independent were you working by yourself and was everyone just scattered around uh, not knowing where to go first because no, there was there just was... so much chaos no yeah there was a lot right it was organized chaos nobody was with me i was acting in my own capacity uh, nobody really knew if in fact i was there or i wasn't there it wasn't important to anybody You see what happens is this here. People often uh talk about the incident in New York City on September 11, 2001 as the worst incident in recent memory on American soil, right? That's mm-hmm. what most people would tell you, but I tell people, you know, that's only partially true. The fact is that it was the two worst incidents in recent memory on American soil. We had two 110-story buildings struck by two commercial jets at two different times. They were struck 17 minutes apart from each other, and the buildings stood 131 feet apart from each other. So what I'm trying to say is that we had two major incidents occurring simultaneously side by side. two 110 story buildings fully engulfed with fire with people trapped in both how in the world do you get a handle on that mm-hmm. yeah i understand it. that this is not an incident this is two incidents happening simultaneously separated only by 17 minutes occurring side by side so now you have to understand that you have hundreds of emergency vehicles responding to the scene from all parts of New York City, right? You have uh-huh. maybe 100 fire engines responding. Some of those firefighters who responded, many of them may have never ever been to the World Trade Center at all. Just like I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I'm born and raised in New York City. I'm 63 years old. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. You wouldn't believe how many people from New York City have never been to the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building or the Twin Towers. We just take it for granted. So now you have fire engines with firefighters responding to the scene. They pull up 
in, e in front of either the North Tower or the South Tower. Depending on where they physically stop, they enter either one of those buildings. Once they get inside those buildings, they're ordered to go to the upper floors to start searching for victims and helping people get down. In the radio communications, calling from the floors above to the command chiefs down at the base of the building, they're giving them information. Hey, we have fire on the 34th floor. We have seven people injured. We have five people that are dead. And the chief is asking these firefighters, okay, where exactly are you? And they're saying, what do you mean, where are we? We're in the Twin Towers. And the chief says, I know you're in the Twin Towers. Well, what building are you in? And they turn around and says, I don't know. They didn't, the firefighters who were unfamiliar with the World Trade Center complex, they didn't know if they were in the North Tower. They didn't know if they were in the South Tower. So they're giving all this information back to command chiefs. And command chiefs really can't make sense of it because they don't know exactly what tower they're giving these reports from. And in so, less than an hour, and in less than an hour, in 55 minutes, the second building struck is already collapsed. So the entire scene was just chaos. People didn't know where they were, what they were doing. They were just you know, focused on getting people out. Exactly. But, this was, okay, I want to make this perfectly clear. This was not a firefighting incident, okay? This was an incident of emergency medical care. It was treat people as best as you can, as many people as you can, as quick as you can. There was no sense of even trying to fight these fires because you really couldn't get to them. It was just a matter of a mass evacuation, helping the injured and, and hoping for the best. And less than an hour, it didn't matter anymore because the first building collapsed. And then a half hour after that, the second building collapsed. So this is, was really not a firefighting incident at all. So, so which department was this concerned with? Well, you know what? You had, you had three major New York City departments uh, of first responders. Obviously, the New York City Fire Department, the New York City Police Department. And then you had a, another police department called the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. It's a bi-state police agency who actually had their own uh, police station inside the towers because the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is a very wealthy, cash-producing, bi-state agency of New York and New Jersey, they owned the Twin Towers, so they had their own private police force there. So when the buildings collapsed, we lost 343 fire department members 23 New York City police officers and 37 New York, New Jersey Port Authority police officers. So the three of us, the three uh, departments were working together. You know, you had firefighters were running upstairs. You had the Port Authority police who were already up the stairs because they have a police station in the base of the towers. Then you had the New York City Police Department responding so it's not like we had this concerted effort. It was basically do whatever you can, get as high up as you can into the towers. If you see people in distress, if people are critically injured, just try to get them down. And that's really what the incident was all about. You know, there was really no way that we could fully get uh, a handle on the situation. There was just too much happening at once. It was just way too confusing. Like I told you, we had two buildings struck at two different times, hundreds of radio communications that nobody can make sense of. Okay, so uh, at, at what point of time did you think that, uh, okay, I need to go in right now and I need to go and start bringing people out? Well, what happened was, uh, as I told you, the, one of the first things I wanted to do was to maintain the outside perimeter of the complex free of vehicles blocking each other. And then at that point, the second thing I was concerned about was the water supply going into the water supply to feed the firefighting system inside the building. Because I knew that the firefighting system that was incorporated into the building was going to be compromised. So that firefighters, if they were going to attempt to use that in-house firefighting uh, water system, that it's probably compromised and that they were going to need as much water supplied from outside the building as opposed to the, the water pumps 
inside the building that was supposed to supply that system. And I was concerned about a huge loss of life simply because I knew the buildings were going to collapse, but nobody believed me. Nobody could understand why I was saying these buildings are going to collapse, but nobody knew that I studied them when I was taking engineering courses in college. And so knowing that these buildings were definitely going to collapse, I knew time was of the essence. I knew we were going to lose a lot of people, but the people who I want to save first and foremost were the ambulance crews, because I knew that they were going to be the ones we were going to need the most at the end of the day, the emergency medical technicians and the paramedics who were setting up their treatment area in the lobby of both towers, which was the logical place to set up your treatment area, because as victims were being brought down from the floors above, that's where you could best treat them immediately in the lobby of the towers. It made a lot of sense, except not to me, because these buildings are going to collapse and then we're going to lose our emergency medical technicians and also the paramedics. So those are the ones I wanted to save first by forcing them to evacuate the towers and move their treatment area about six blocks away. And, and evacuating the last crew who didn't want to leave, I got caught in the collapse of the towers. So wait, uh, the tower collapsed on top of you? Well, I was right outside. I was right outside of the South Tower. I had just convinced the last ambulance crew to get in their ambulance and drive away from the building, get away from the complex, because I told them the buildings would collapse, but they really didn't believe me. But they did leave. And as I was outside the South Tower, right in front of it, I heard a noise and I looked up and I see the building coming down. I started running, but I didn't make it. And and what exactly happened after that? Do you uh, just run me through what happened when you saw the tower collapsing and started running? Well, what happened was as I was outside the South Tower, I heard a I heard a loud noise and I looked up and and, and I thought a bomb had exploded on the top of the building because I saw the top of the building kind of explode not realizing at that point that the building, in fact, really was starting to collapse. I thought maybe somebody had put a bomb on the top of the building, but all this debris started raining down and I started running. And as I'm running, the building is collapsing, which I really don't know because my back is to the building. And as the building's coming down, one floor hitting the floor below, it's puffing a lot of air out under pressure, and the air pressure took my helmet off of my head. And my helmet was flying through the air, but I just kept on running. I tried to make it underneath the footbridge that was in front of the World Trade Center complex. And I'm thinking if I could run fast enough and make it underneath that footbridge, maybe they would find and identify my body. Because I realized I only had about 10 to 15 seconds left to live. And as I was running as fast as I can with my firefighting clothing on, my helmet was taken off of my head by the wind pressure, and then the wind pressure kind of lifted me off of my feet, and then a piece of steel hit me in the back of the head and split my head open, and huge slabs of concrete were just hitting my body. With every slab of concrete, bones are breaking, and now I'm buried under the steel and the concrete in this darkness with no air. I was suffocating and buried with all these other people in the darkness who were screaming at the top of their lungs. Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot to take in. So what... Okay, so now you have been buried under the South Tower, and uh, you, you're, uh, are you able to, uh, do you know where you are at this point? Do you know what's happened? No, I don't know. I'm just, I'm suffocating. I'm, I'm buried under steel and concrete. Uh, I'm in a lot of pain. Uh, people screaming. We can't see each other. And uh, then I was in the middle of all these fires, and I thought I was going to burn to death, and I was hoping that I would suffocate to death before I burned to death. So was there any point of time when you were... Be- so just run me through what went through your mind in those moments when you thought that you were not going to make it. What, what were you thinking of? Well, the first thing that came to my mind, I was very angry at myself because I said to myself, you idiot, you're the one who knew this building was going to collapse and you put yourself right underneath it. I mean, how smart are you? And then I started thinking about my family. I was thinking, what are they going to do? What are they going to say when they get the news that I had died? And then I said, I can't believe it. 
This morning was one of the most beautiful days I'll ever remember. It looked like Michelangelo had chosen the perfect color blue from his palette to paint the sky. The birds were chirping as sweet as could be. The sun was shining. The temperature was a perfect, uh, about a, maybe 78 degrees. It was just a, one of the most beautiful days in New York City. I was supposed to introduce a new rescue hero, a New York City firefighter made in my likeness. And then I can't believe that it all ended up this way. And then I had a flashback to the day that I was sworn into the fire department 20 years before. I remember standing in front of the mayor of New York City and other 124 young guys like me with suits and short haircuts and clean shirts and a tie. And we were taking the vow on becoming a new fireman in New York City. And in that vow, while we were being sworn into the fire department, we had to swear that we'd be willing to lay down our life so that somebody else might live in the discharge of our duties and becoming a new fireman in New York City. And here it is 20 years later, I'm laying underneath the building and all I kept saying to myself, you never thought you were going to live up to that vow and today you're going to live up to it. Was there a, a, a small part of you that regretted it, that, that told you that, oh, I should have just continued, I should have gone to the press conference, I should have never done this? You know what? I wouldn't lie to you 100% absolutely. That's another thing I kept saying. Why did you even bother coming here? Uh, you weren't supposed to be here today. Look what you just did. You just ruined your family's lives. Your brothers and sisters are not going to handle the news when they find out that you died. And then I realized, you know what? I wouldn't have lived with myself had I not come to the scene. If I would have gone to the press conference and the buildings came down and a lot of my friends were killed, I would have regretted not having been there. So in hindsight at this point, no, I don't regret it. But at the time, I think I really did. So uh, how, how did you get yourself out of that destruction? How did you get I yourself did, out from under that building? Well, I didn't. You know, they found a, a, they found a void and they found four of us that were buried. And they, they, they got us out from underneath the steel and concrete. And they put me on a stretcher and they ran uh, over to the other side of the World Trade Center by the Hudson River. You see, there's a river called the Hudson River that separates New York City from New Jersey. And boats came from New Jersey across the river into Manhattan to get people out of New York City, which was the only way of getting away. Either you ran on foot on one direction or you jumped on boats and, and, and went over to New Jersey. Well, they had me on a stretcher and they ran, they put me on the deck of a boat. They needed to get me to a hospital right away. And then the second tower collapsed on top of the boat. And then I got buried in the engine room the second time. Okay. So, so you've been rescued, you've been put on a boat and the second tower collapses on the boat. Exactly. Then I get buried in the engine room. And, and what, what happens after that? Well, after about an hour of being buried alone in the engine room, because everybody else on the boat jumped overboard who were with me because they were getting hit with all the shards of glass raining down on the deck of the boat from the collapse of the second tower. About an hour later, as I was trapped in the engine room, people came back to the boat. They came into the engine room to start the motors and they found me. And then the boat skipped across the river and I was in an ambulance. I didn't know where I was. I was in New Jersey, another state. And then I woke up, I was in an operating room of a hospital and they were cutting all my clothes off of me. And uh, we all write our name on the inside of our coat, of our firefighting coat. And the name said Tommy McNamara. I had borrowed his coat because he was off duty that day. And so that's how they had me listed as Tommy McNamara. And for three days, the fire department had me declared dead. And so, wait, so they had you declared dead. So they had told your family? Well, what happened was my family actually found out, I think, early the next morning because of, I had a very good friend who I was supposed to meet for lunch that day after the press conference. And he had come into Manhattan. We were going to we were planning on having lunch later in the afternoon. So he started coming into Manhattan for a meeting with his company early that morning. And then, of course, when he was in Manhattan, uh, the World Trade Center was attacked. He jumped in his car and he went back home. And he was listening to the news reports and he heard stories that there were people in hospitals in other states. 
So he got in his car and he started searching all the hospitals for me because he heard that I was missing. And he's the one who actually found me. And then they got in contact with my family. But the fire department didn't know that I was alive. So, uh, so, so your family for a brief moment didn't know whether you had made it or not? No, they didn't know because I right around midnight, I think firefighters, some of the firefighters had called my house to talk to my wife and said that I was missing. And they found my car. I had my own fire department vehicle. They found that. It was crushed. And they said I was in the South Tower. So they assumed that I didn't make it. And, and what did your wife have to say to them? Well, my wife, if you talk to my wife, she never, ever believed that I was dead. My wife will tell you that her instinct told her that I was hurt, but I was still alive someplace. So, she just had a premonition, that's all. Oh, so so she she believed in her, in her heart that you were alive and that you had made it. Yes, it's true. And then I have a very good friend. I was with him just before he was killed. His wife, when she heard the news at her home that the World Trade Center Twin Towers had collapsed, she told me she knew instantly her husband was dead. And he was. It was just a premonition. Right. I, I guess family members can feel these things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't explain it, but, you know, uh-huh. uh, sometimes these things happen. Yeah, sometimes you know, and sometimes you just believe that you don't know. So exactly. uh, what? So after the dust had settled, after everything had I wouldn't say calm down, but after the chaos had stopped, uh, what did the city feel like? What did I don't New York City feel like? I really can't tell you that because I was in the hospital in the operating room. Right. So, oh, okay. So let me rephrase that. When when you came to, okay, uh, when when you came to when you regained consciousness, uh, what was the first thing that you thought of? Were you grateful that, oh, okay, I'm I'm alive. I'm 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 completely fine now. I'm I'm being taken care of. Or was your first instinct to go, or uh, is everyone okay over there? Well, the thing is, I didn't, you know, when uh, when I came out of the operating room, they took me up to a, a private room in, in the hospital. I was on morphine for the pain, and uh-huh. morphine makes you very euphoric. I don't know if you've ever been on morphine, but morphine makes you very euphoric. So I kind of was... Uh, I can't even explain it to you. I just didn't really know. I hadn't comprehended what had really happened. I was alone, tied down to a hospital bed on morphine, and I just, a million things were going through my head. I didn't really know that the buildings had really collapsed yet. I just thought that some of the, you know, a bomb went off and blew some of the debris down onto the streets. And I don't even know that anybody else is hurt or anybody else has died. I'm thinking I'm the only one hurt at this point. I just don't know until uh, maybe two days later, I found out that both towers had collapsed. Oh, so uh, at what point of time did uh, did the people of New York City uh, kind of figure out that this was a terrorist attack, that it was nothing out of the... It was, it was something that was orchestrated to destroy the Twin Towers? Well, you know, there are some people that will tell you when the first jet struck the first tower, there were many people that would tell you they knew exactly that this was a terrorist attack because they could actually see the jet aiming itself at the building. They're saying that if there was really something wrong with the plane, the pilot probably could have avoided the building. You know what I mean? It was like yeah, he, he had the jet straight in line for about a, a mile to strike that tower. He made no attempt to turn that jet. And so anybody who's ever flown a plane, they would tell you, no, it was obvious he was deliberately aiming the jet at that tower. And then, of course, when the second jet hit, I mean, at that point, you knew that this was no coincidence, that this was a deliberate attack, especially because they tried to bomb those towers eight years before. It was very obvious to everybody. I don't think there's a person who would tell you that after the second jet struck, that they still thought it was two accidents. Uh huh. So uh, after uh, you you healed from your injuries at the hospital, did you go back to service, or or what happened after that? Well, when I got out of the hospital, you know, I was in a lot of pain, and eventually I went back to work in headquarters, and I stood in 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 the capacity 
of the director of their public education program, which I was in before 9-11. That's what I was doing, you know, recuperating from a prior injury before 9-11. And I, I'm back doing the same thing a second time now recuperating from my injuries because of the World Trade Center. And uh, for three years, I stood in headquarters after 9-11. And on February 21st, 2004, which is tomorrow, will be 15 years that they decided to retire me because of my injuries. But I did try for three years to get back to becoming an active fireman again. But tomorrow, 15 years ago, they made a decision that they were never going to let me back again. And, and how did you feel about the decision? I was devastated. You know, I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of um, mixed emotions. Uh, uh, it was an opportunity, you know, for me to move out of New York City, of me, my wife, and my kids. We were contemplating moving out of New York City uh, sometime before 9-11, but I wasn't able to because I had to be a resident of New York City to be a firefighter. But now with this opportunity to have been retired, uh, we could move away to a, a, a bigger home, to a, a nicer community. So that was the upside. But on the other side of the coin, I was devastated because I wanted to be an active fireman for at least another 20 years after 9-11. So my injuries uh, dictated that I would never go back again. So I had all these crazy mixed emotions. Uh, did uh, did you always want to be a fireman? I think somehow I probably knew that I would be. Uh, I was not, I didn't come from a family of lawyers and doctors, so I didn't really have any professional aspirations. What really attracted me to the New York City Fire Department was a couple of things. One, it was a civil service department that guarantees a pension and benefits and steady salary uh, and also commands a lot of respect, you know, of all the agencies that you can work for. The New York City Fire Department is the most esteemed. And I think an equal part of me wanted to work for the fire department because of their work schedule, because you work 24 hours and then you're off for three days. So I knew that on my days off, I could actually work another job and make some extra money because I didn't really come from any wealth. So uh, how, how do you, so does this day, uh, do, you, do you still think about that day, uh, you know, just randomly during your day? Does it just pop into your mind and you remember, uh, you know, the fact that you were buried twice on, on 9-11? Does it just come into your head or have you completely... Uh, I wouldn't say moved on or forgotten, but have you accepted it or have you have you processed that 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 situation? You know, uh, God, I, I have all these crazy emotions that surround the incident. Uh, I think about it probably at least once a day, if not a couple of times a day, mostly because I've morphed into a public speaker. And that's what I do now. I do a lot of corporate speaking. I also do a lot of volunteer speaking. And as I travel and speak, obviously, I'm asked to tell the story as I'm telling it to you now. So for me, having to uh, tell the story, I relive the day over and over again. And I'll probably end up doing this for the rest of my life, I'm sure. But does a part of you want to just forget it, forget that it ever happened and just just kind of carry on? No, I don't think I would ever want to forget it. I think that if anything... I have an obligation to keep the memory alive of all those who were carried uh, to their graves in the cemetery who gave their lives so that somebody else might live. And my life was spared. And everywhere I go, all the places that I speak at, everybody tells me that God saved my life for a reason, that I have a bigger mission in this world and he has a bigger purpose for me and that... Uh, I need to tell the story of the heroes. I'm not a hero. I'm a survivor. The heroes get carried to their graves and I get to tell their story. And I think I have an obligation to share the story with people who want to hear the story respectfully and correctly because so many people came from all over the United States of America to New York City to help us come out 
from underneath that wreckage. People came, we estimated half a million people came over the eight months and 19 days of the rescue recovery effort that ended on May 30th of 2002. And people came and served in every capacity that you could imagine from every little town, every big city. People just came and says, hey, I don't have any experience. I don't have any skills. Uh, I just want to do my parts in American. I'll, you know, I'll hand out food. I'll massage your back. I'll say a prayer. I'll cry. I'll hand out supplies. Just give me something to do. And so we in New York City will never have the proper opportunity to thank all these people who came to help us during that eight months and 19 days of the rescue recovery. So I feel a moral obligation to travel the country and thank all these people who we don't know who they are just for whatever you might have done for us, whether you you said a prayer, whether you cried, whether you came, whether you donated money. That's just how I feel, you know, uh, about all this uh, volunteer work that I do. It's all about giving back and sharing with the people and my way of saying thank you on behalf of all New Yorkers. Uh, that, that's, that's beautiful. And I'm, I'm sure your country thanks you for your service as well. Oh, they it's do. no small feat, yeah. No, exactly. So uh, how has... Uh, you know, this is just concluding it. Uh, how do you think America as an entire nation has changed since that day? Well, I think America has changed. Like, um, I think every single country in, in the world has changed, not only because of 9-11. I think 9-11 was the impetus of a lot of different things uh, in terms of new security measures. Uh, you know, life isn't just so spontaneous anymore. You know, obviously, anybody that's gone to an airport can tell you that. You don't just casually get on a plane anymore. Uh, you can't casually walk into any building in Manhattan uh, without going through a security check. Uh, you can't casually go into a uh, a sports venue or, or a, a concert hall without your, your bags being checked. Uh, so life has really changed in, in so many different ways in regards to security. But also at the same time, you know, the world is a volatile world at this point. I'm sure that you know that uh, there's so many conflicts that are going on, uh, not only with one country against another, but countries against multiple countries. Uh, there's a lot of dissension here in the United States of America right now. Uh, uh, people are divided on so many different lines, uh, you know, in ways that I never thought, you know, people are divided raci racially. They're divided ethnically. They're divided on political uh, uh, affiliation, sexual orientation, gender, and so forth and so on. And it's not like this was the Civil War that the United States fought back so many years ago, you know, with our president, Abraham Lincoln. This country is divided not like it was in the Civil War, the North against the South. This, this country is divided, like I said, on so many different lines. You know, and it's getting worse and worse every single day. I mean, there's so much controversy, you know, uh, politically and racially and ethnically and, uh, and, and, and so forth and so on. Uh, and everybody in the United States and I'm sure in other countries are going to tell you the same thing. You know, we're living in some very, very difficult and very volatile and very trying times. And it seems everybody's filled with every negative emotion that you would see described in, in books of psychology. People are fearful. People are mistrusting. People are depressed. It's, you know, and I think if all these uh, emotions came down even heavier after the attack on 9-11, because here in the United States, we were always so insulated from these types of incidents. I remember, you know, as a teenager, you know, when I was in high school, when I was in college and I watched the evening news and they would talk about what's going up, what's going on in Northern Ireland, you know, between the Catholics and the Protestants. And you'd find out what's going on in Israel with the Palestinians. And you never really seemed to believe that this stuff was really happening because you've never witnessed it. But on September 11th, I think it was a wake up call to Americans when we realized that we're also vulnerable to uh terrorism and that life like all these other countries are going to be very different from that point forward so i think it was very unnerving for many many people here in our country the united states of america well that's that's an incredible story you have and 
uh, the fact that you are okay sharing this with everyone else is also very it, it, we all thank you for it to say the well, least got, well you got to bring me to india to speak <laughs> for sure yeah yeah, yeah. We, we'd love to have you here thank you i know it's probably midnight in india isn't it oh uh, it's 11:30 p.m. yeah it's almost midnight okay so i have to say good night <laughs> yeah good night okay thank you okay so that was a lot to take in and uh, for me at least and uh, i'm assuming for everyone listening as well but before we end this i'd just like to bring up a couple of statistics just so that you can gauge the magnitude of what happened there that day so the twin towers were built in the year 1970 and the world trade center housed around uh, 430 companies that were office spaces and the number of uh, people working in the world trade center on an average working day prior to uh, september 11th or 9/11 was uh, 50,000 people 50,000 people were the average number of people working there on an average day an average number of daily visitors to that company was to that uh, building was 140,000 and the number of people killed on that day was 2823 now the maximum heat of the fires this is the fires that the people felt inside those buildings was 2300 degrees fahrenheit the number of body parts that the various authorities collected were 19500 the number of bodies that were discovered intact were 291 the number of death certificates that were issued without a body because the victims families requested it was 1616 the number of people who are still missing from that day and are still presumed dead are 105 so with just the numbers that i just pat out just now you can gauge just the the size of what happened that day around 3000 people died that day uh including uh members of the fire department the police department and just various other people trying to help other people trapped inside those two buildings to just get out now while we're talking about uh 911 i just like to bring everyone's attention to the fact that terror attacks are something that happen quite frequently in other countries there are countries that are about terror attacks on a daily basis so let's not forget about all these people and their families who are going through such atrocities on a daily basis while we're all tied up in our own lives just oh, you know living our mundane lives going to work coming back and sleeping let's Spare spare a minute to uh, think about the victims and the family members of people who have to go through such experiences in their lives. Also, I'm sure that everyone has heard of the recent Pulwama attacks that happened. So, in light of those events, the government has set up a donation website where you can go donate to the family members of those soldiers who lost their lives on that day. And the website is called bharatkevir.gov.in. So if you could spare a little time and go check out that website then I'm sure any help would be appreciated. So as usual uh thank you for listening.